Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Ministry, Word, and Sacraments, and in Caridian by Martin Chemnitz. We're going to be jumping into, in many respects, the foundation. We, we of course, have spent a bunch of time talking about um, the Word of God, uh, Scripture, uh, in terms of like the authority that these have in the church, as well as then the place of the true ancient Catholic religion or faith as deriving from the scriptures and being in accord with the scriptures. And now we're going to turn and look at the scriptures themselves, especially what is often called the canon of scripture. Um, canon meaning rule or norm. Uh, what forms these books from which we draw our doctrine? We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. There is a a popular meme out there, and for those of you who are aware of it, or at least the template, uh, this will be beneficial. For those of you who aren't, I, I apologize in advance. Okay. What you have in this meme is a normal curve. Okay. And then you have stylized drawings on either side of the curve, so down, down where it's uh, really minimized, where there's a small percentage of the population. And on one side, you've got a really unflatteringly drawn guy. He looks, he looks very uh, uh, not intelligent and not well put together. Okay? On the other end of the spectrum, you have a guy, he's usually depicted as hooded, and he almost looks, he looks like some kind of super enlightened monk. Okay? And then the normal curve would be everybody in the middle, Everybody in the middle is also kind of depicted as looking rather stupid and not well put together. Okay, just not as bad as the guy on the end. All right? Now, what you would put, if you're going to put this meme into the context of our class, then on the one end, the, the low end, where you have the guy who looks the least intelligent of all, okay, and the least put together of all, guess what he's going to say? The Bible is God's word. Now on the other end of the spectrum, the guy who's hooded and looks like the enlightened, super intelligent monk, guess what he's going to say? The Bible is God's word. And everything in the middle is going to be the Bible is not God's word. (laughs) Okay? Now how do we get there? And of what use is this illustration? There is a very simple way And I think this is what gets a bad rap. There is a very simple way to just assert the Bible is God's word. Which version? Doesn't matter. (laughs) The Bible is God's word. I just take it for what it is. Um, This sometimes gets labeled fundamentalism. Uh, The excesses of this kind of view... Sometimes the idea that maybe the King James Version is the only version, and that the King James Version descended on golden plates from heaven at one time or something like that, and is not subject to any historical or literary investigation or criticism. So again, on that really simple end of the spectrum, there are many people who just assert that the Bible is God's Word. They're not wrong even though they might be wrong in all kinds of ways in which they formulate that opinion or think about that opinion. On the other end of that spectrum, you have the tradition of the small-c Catholic Church. That's the church that stretches from the apostles all the way through church history up to the Reformation, all the way through the Reformation, and exists today in a very, very few churches like the LCMS. And that is the statement that the Bible is God's word, but it's actually quite nuanced and sophisticated. So we're going to be looking at the nuanced and sophisticated way of seeing the Bible as God's word. It's a multi-layered, complicated, complex question, 
But ultimately, we end up in the same place as those folks who just say, the Bible's God's word. Okay? Um, everyone else is in the middle, trying, and the vast majority of folks within Christendom and outside of Christendom probably these days uh, think that God's word is in the Bible, but that the Bible is not identical with God's word. See that distinction? Now, who determines, who determines what parts of the Bible are God's word? Well, I do. Or maybe my pastor, Pastor Fancy Pants, does. He tells me on Sunday morning over the latte and humorous jokes and rock band, uh, what parts of God's word, what parts of scripture, excuse me, are in fact God's word. Okay. Or, or else I abrogate that to myself, and that's my own duty as I'm reading the scripture. I say, well, that's God speaking to me. The rest of this stuff, nope. Okay, That's the vast majority of people today. So I hope that that helps to illustrate and also helps to prime you, so to speak, for what comes next. Lutherans assert that the Bible is God's word, but we do so in a rather complex way relative to those who are also in our nation who assert that the Bible is God's word. Okay, at the bottom of page 43, you'll see question 46. Of course, Chemnitz has taken some pains to bring us to this question. How are the biblical books divided? So obviously he's spoken of the word, the word preached, the biblical books. They are divided in two ways, Chemnitz writes. First, into the books of Old and New Testament. Second, into the canonical and apocrypha books of each Testament. And if you look up the footnote here, it's almost certain that he's not using the Apocrypha. He's not using that word in the way that we use the Apocrypha. But rather, he's using it as the antilegomena. Right? And that is the first of the somewhat sophisticated distinctions that, you, that we make as Lutherans, and we stand in a long line of the small c Catholic Church in doing so. All right, and that is that there are within the scripture this division homologomena and antilegomena, those two divisions. Homologomena is everything spoken in, the, in unity, unison. So um, that is to say that there are books in the scriptures that the entire church has received, and thus they have the same voice, homo. Lagamana, the same voice in assenting that these books are Holy Scripture. What are the anti-Lagamana? Those are books that some within the church spoke against, or at least said, we can't be certain. And in fact, that's probably a better way than speaking against. Rather, we can't be certain that these works actually are Holy Scripture and thus God's Word. What books are those? All right. James, Jude, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Revelation, and Hebrews. Those are classically the anti-legomena. What does that mean materially from the church? That means if you were trying to demonstrate a belief that all Christians needed to hold and that belief was taught only in Hebrews or only in 2 Peter. You could not bind people's conscience to that, to that belief. Does that make sense? Now, if a doctrine is found in one of the homologomena books, okay, one of the not contested books, then those books are binding on all. Does that make sense? So what if, let's just use a really crass example. What if the book of Revelation said you have to wear a silly red hat in order to be saved? And you took that line from Revelation. You said, hey, Christian church on earth, you all have to wear silly red hats in order to be saved. Christian church on earth could say, we know that's in Revelation, but that's a contested book. That's an anti-legomena book. You can't bind our consciences on that point. 
where in the canonical scriptures or where in the homologomena do we see this teaching that you must wear a silly red hat in order to be saved? It's not there, therefore it's not binding. Does that distinction make sense? Okay, I see a hand coming up in the, in the back. So, um, so if the um, if it's not binding on the conscience, does that mean it's therefore uh, uh, up to each individual to believe? So one person might say, "Well, I'm going to believe that the red hat is necessary," and then somebody else says, "Well, I'm not because it's anti-legomena." Yeah, what something like that would do, and a lot of this is just hypothetical because I can't think of a single instance. Uh, and I kind of, I didn't spend a ton of time, but in my preparation for this class, I tried to think of a single concrete instance historically of this happening, and I couldn't come up with one. Maybe there's one out there. There certainly could be. I'm just not aware of it. The, um, yes, what, what we've just defined then would be an open question. So theologically, an open question is one where you just say, we can't definitively know and we can't come to terms with it this side of heaven. So we're going to permit, we know, that we know by the nature of the question that there's a right and a wrong. But we're not going to permit that to divide us. We're going to just wait and see. So what would be a classic open question? Something like the perpetual virginity of Mary. Did Mary remain ever virgin. That is an opinion held by authors of the Book of Concord, and you can see it reflected in the Book of Concord, but it's not necessary to hold. It's an open question. No one's going to condemn you one way or the other, even though there is, in reality, an answer, yes or no. And we'll all find out soon enough. So what you've just you know, kind of articulated on my silly example of the silly red hat is that would be an open question, um, but Ultimately, when the rubber hits the road, if you held to that personally, that's one thing. But probably the canon, I mean, this is where it's all analogies break down. And when you look at the canon, when you look at the homologomena, then, um, then those, they're going to say, well, you don't have to do anything to be saved. And so somebody's going to say that includes a red hat. And so, you see, so that, that's where the analogy might break down. Because the doctrine is... you no works whatsoever. And the point we're hypothetically, you know, jokingly, superficially taking is that Revelation teaches you've got to wear a red hat to be saved. And so that, that's where the analogy, in fact, breaks down. It would have to be something not contrary to the homologomena. Um, well, it can, an open question can always be abused if it's asserted that everyone must believe in it. But what I'm doing is just kind of pulling back and critiquing the example I gave because the example I gave is, in fact, uh, not a good example at the point in which you say, well, the canonical scriptures condemn any work being included in salvation. And I'm just trying to clarify that that wasn't my point. My point was just, what if you had the, an off-the-wall teaching and someone said, well, it's right here. We all have to believe this. So that was the point of the analogy, not the other. Yeah. Okay, Pastor, so, yes, please. Comment and then the question. Uh, in regards to Mary, so we, the HIPAA laws don't apply in heaven? <laughs> the HIPAA laws... I don't know. I don't might. know. We're never going to find out. Well, there's probably going to be an answer. I mean, if she's got kids up there, there's probably uh, there's probably going to be an answer. Uh, maybe it's so. a Mormon situation. Yeah. So I, at any rate, have fun. fun. We digress. Yes. Huh? Uh, uh, on a serious note, uh, uh-huh. in James. Why wouldn't we look at it as an example of a, a verse we might not like uh, when James says, faith without works is dead? So, okay, uh, riddle me that one one more time. In James? Yeah, faith without works is dead. Yeah. 
I don't think I've ever liked that verse. Oh, just throw it out then. Yeah. Yeah. Do the Thomas Jefferson and <laughs> snip sure. all the parts out of your Bible you don't like. Uh, yeah, the problem, uh, the problem with snipping that particular verse out is that it's articulated elsewhere in the scriptures, including in St. Paul himself. Uh, so, yeah, so you don't want to snip that one out. Um, but, yes, as we get into the conversation, you're going to see why at one point in Luther's ministry, he did refer to James as an epistle of straw. Now, as he grew as a theologian, he, he ended up modifying that position somewhat. But why does Luther feel free to do that? I mean, we, we here in, in the LCMS, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod of the 20th and 21st century, would never feel comfortable just stating, eh, why don't you, in fact, cut James out of the, or cut Revelation or Jude out of the canon? That would immediately be seen as a wrong statement, you see. That's, in fact, where we've actually slid over into the fundamentalist camp, because Luther could say that and could say that without scandal. He wasn't scandalizing anyone by simply pointing out the distinction between homologomena and antilegomena. Luther would just say, count me among those who's uncertain of the apostolic authority of this text. That's why nobody, nobody in Luther's day jumped on him and said, look, he's shredding up the Bible to serve his own theology. Nobody did that because everybody in the Western church at that time was, was thinking the same way Luther is thinking. So these books, you're just saying these books, don't they can't testify to the authenticity of the writers, Peter, James, and John, right? Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. The apostolic authority is more than just the authorship, though. It includes, it, it can include the content and or the pedigree. So um, where did this text come from? Uh, if it, so take, for example, um, Mark's gospel. Mark isn't one of the original 12. He's not an apostle in the proper sense. What's the pedigree of that text? When Mark, Mark was under Peter, and when Mark wrote it, he was under Peter. And, it's, and it, so it has that pedigree, and it's received as such within the church. So authorship is one question, pedigree is another question, and content is yet another question. So those are, those are the typical grounds upon which the ancient church, say, would, say, would make the distinction between homologamina and antilogamina. Okay, um, yeah, I'll take, I'll take your hand, and then um, one more technical point, and then we'll move over to the chart. And I'm sorry if uh, the technical points aren't welcome, um, but it's incumbent upon me to make them nonetheless. <laughs> we'll try to get out of the weeds here soon. We'll try to get up out of the forest. What about the book of Esther? Here it's listed. Are you... Are you um, on page 45, as under the apocryphal books. But On page 45. Oh, you've skipped 45. ahead. You're way ahead of us. Oh, no problem. 40, 45, you're seeing, um, I'm seeing Esther on page 44. 44. Mm-hmm. Um, top of which? Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a different Esther. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, one more one more technical point all the way back on 43. Okay. So, page 43 under question 46.2 into the canonical and apocryphal books of each testament. That's a division, all right? Now, what I asserted at the start is that what Chemnitz more than likely means is canonical equals homologamina and apocrypha, or apocryphal, means antilegomena. Okay? There is a possibility, though, that what he means by canonical are the books you find in your Lutheran study Bible, and apocryphal are those books of the apocrypha. Like, uh, some of you remember the 11 o'clock study when we attempted to do some of the apocrypha. We got through, we, I think we did profitably with a number of the texts, and then we got to Ecclesiasticus, and it was just like hard slogging. 
and we eventually decided to do something else. Uh, but I, I think we studied uh, Tobias, I think we studied Judith, those types of books. In a, in a Roman Catholic Bible that's printed today, those books would usually, the Apocrypha books, would, the way we use that term, would usually be stuck between the Old and New Testaments. Makes sense? Okay, so I'm sorry to just make that technical point. I just don't want... It's ambiguous in translation, this point two, and that's the last technical point I hope to make for just a minute so that we don't despair of the rest of our day. Over to 47 and 48, then, we see all of this charted out. And if nothing else, this will be a helpful reminder of the content and breakdown of the scriptures. And I'll kind of throw in a little uh, extra commentary here that, obviously, when you look at the page, you don't see Chemnitz making. On page 44, the question 47 is asked, which are the canonical books of the Old Testament? It begins with the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in many respects, these five books of Moses, they go by other names, Pentateuch, five books, uh, Torah. These five books of Moses are the Bible within the Bible. In a very real sense, everything else flows from and is commentary on these first five books. That will have its parallel in the New Testament, What's the Bible within the Bible of the New Testament, would you say? The Gospels. Everything else flows from and is commentary on the Gospels. So I can help give you a little bit of a more three-dimensional view of the Scriptures. After the five books of Moses, then you have uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Now, typically, and again, this is a a little bit more dimensionality than Chemnitz gives us here, but typically you would split Esther and Job on that list. Everything Esther, including Esther, and prior would be referred to as historical books, books of history. While Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, generally speaking, sometimes Psalms gets cast out of that group and put into a different category, but generally speaking, then, these five texts would be seen as the wisdom literature, books of wisdom. Okay? And I think you can see how that makes sense. Then you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, including Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then the minor prophets, you have 12. Isn't that fascinating? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And these were, have been frequently in the history of the church, been lumped together as, the, as just the book or books sometimes of the prophets. So important to recognize that while these do have a somewhat scattered origin, obviously, in terms of their emergence, the way the church receives the 12 minor prophets is rather as a unity. So there's that tradition as well, to see it as the book of the prophets. That would be the 12 minor prophets. Okay, over on the top of 45, we see apocryphal, that language used the way we're familiar with it, and without any uncertainty. Which are the apocryphal books of the Old Testament? Judith, Wisdom, Tobias, Sirach, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees, Esther of Haman and Mordecai, and then the fragments of history. Look, you have a different Daniel. You have Susanna, Bel of Babylon, the dragon of Babylon. And then fragments of the prayer of Azariah, the three children, and Manasseh. Okay. 
Which are, this is question 49, which are the canonical books of the New Testament? Well, you have the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Acts of Apostles tucked in there, because if you recall, that's really Luke part 2. Now, many Lutherans, by the way, uh, and among them some of our best scholars, think that the book of Revelation is the Gospel of John part 2. Um, some think that Revelation is actually part one and the Gospel of John is part two, but whatever. They see a connection between those two books and we hold a shared authorship there. So that's a possibility, even though that's certainly not held by the historic church, which sees them as separate. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the Acts of the Apostles often stuck in there with the evangelists. And you can see how that's the Bible within the Bible of the New Testament. Okay, next come the epistles, and of course you have the epistles of Paul. Paul, in terms of quantity, uh, writes more than anyone else in the New Testament. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. I don't know why he's got the ordering flipped there. Thessalonians, 1 and 2. And then the pastoral epistles, which is another smaller breakdown not given here, but the pastoral epistles usually are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Because, of course, Paul is writing to these two young pastors who are going to appoint other pastors, and so the content is pastoral, thus the pastoral epistles. And then Philemon is the final of the epistles of Paul. Okay, who else writes homologamina epistles? Peter does. First Peter. And John does. First John. Okay, which are regarded as apocryphal? See, now that's why when you go back to um, page 43 and you see that he says into the canonical and apocryphal books, he's almost certainly speaking of the anti-legomena books. And that's what he means here by apocryphal. You can see the little footnote there. It's not, ter- or, yeah, it's not terribly helpful. I guess it's an endnote. I'm sorry, I'm saying footnote. It's an endnote. It's not terribly helpful. But it's just pointing out the way that he's using language uh, different than us. So we would, we would call these the anti-legomena books in the New Testament. And again, should be a repeat of the list given before. Second Peter, second and third John, Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation. All right, so that gives you a sense of the lay of the land. And it gives you a more dynamic understanding, I think, of the scriptures. Again, we land on the fact that this is all God's word, but we look at the scriptures, the Bible given to us, in a multi-dimensional, multi-layered way. So you can see that from Luther's vantage point, now I love the book of James. I, th- I think it's thoroughly canonical. I think the context are canonical. I don't think it, it intrudes upon Paul or contradicts Paul in the least. I think it's wonderful. I have no qualms about it. But if Luther says, um, hey, you know, I don't, and let's, let's push Luther beyond even where he ever was historically. Let's make a caricature of Luther. And Luther says, cut that thing out of the Bible. I'm going to disagree with Luther, but I'm still going to be in fellowship with Luther because I recognize his freedom to do that. You see? All right. So that would, that would then give you an articulation, at least, of the way that that could be applied. Okay, let me pause there. Let me pause there. Uh, let's see if you have any, any questions or comments or any observations, anything you want, you've learned along the way that um, is helpful to you that you'd like to add in terms of giving a little dimensionality there to the list of the scriptures. Yeah, please. Yes, can you talk about, there was a council at one time that determined what books to be in the Bible or should not be in the Bible. Um, was that? I don't know of that. I have heard that bandied about popular, yeah. popularly, and usually, usually something, something Constantine, something, something conspiracy theory. I don't know of anything 
If you, if you run across something that's substantive, would you let me know? I'd be happy to take a look at it. But I don't know of anything like that, uh, where, the, where a council just decreed, these are the homolegomena, these are the antilegomena, everything else is necessarily out. I don't know of that, and I'm doubtful of it. Or at least I would put it this way, that that would fall, even within the medieval tradition, uh, of being... Um, an area in which popes and councils can err, even if there was such a thing. Again, it's not scandalous at the time of Luther. Think of how his enemies would have pounced on him. If there was a church council that said, hey, these are the books, James is in. Think about being an enemy of Luther. Luther says, I don't like that book, it's out. Ha, you have to cut up the scriptures, reject the, count, the ancient council of the church in order to retain your doctrine. But that kind of accusation just isn't really made by Luther's contemporaries, at least not in any substantive way. Why? They're all, work, they're all playing in the same ball field, and they know that that's a fair move. Later on, anachronistically, because sola scriptura, even among us as Lutherans, has atrophied more into a sense of like, I don't know, it's just God's word. It's all equal, it's just God's word. Every word of it has always been on the same level. Then, then Roman Catholics say, hey, look what Luther's doing. That's contrary to what you all hold about Scripture. And then you get a bad taste in your mouth for Luther, and you get all nervous, and you want to become Roman Catholic. But you can see how that's really based on some deceit. And it's based on, it's exploiting our own ignorance uh, where, we've, where our understanding of sola scriptura has atrophied. Would someone be willing to uh, tone down the heat? My uh, ears are starting to radiate and I'm noticing some people bo- falling asleep. I know it's dry, but it's a higher percentage than usual. Okay, the canon of the Old Testament all the way to Malachi. That was already canonized, as you would say, or established, right? Because it was 400 years before these other books came into being. Correct? Yeah, well, let me tell you another thing of why the canon is uncertain. Okay, so this is something you can go get a PhD on in, uh, if you want, but you can go study the church fathers and what books they list as canonical, and you're going to find differences. Okay? And you're also going to find this point that throughout the history of the church, there's been an openness, including in principle to this very day, though I think it would be doubtful, um, an openness to what if there is a new book discovered that one can actually establish its apostolic authority? Is the canon, in fact, closed? Has it ever been sealed? Has the church ever said that's it? I don't think so. And that is, uh, and I mean, of course, this is the tradition of the Western church. It's not. So let me give you an example. What we call 1 Corinthians is, in fact, 2 Corinthians. And what we call 2 Corinthians is, in fact, 3 Corinthians. How do we know this? Because Paul refers to an earlier writing that he had given to the Corinthians. What if we find first 1 Corinthians? <laughs> Prequel Corinthians. And what if, what if it's just obvious? Obvious deals with all the same themes, uses the same language, is dated to the same place where Paul would have been. Would we receive that into the canon or not? Yeah, we would. It would probably come in as anti-legomena, and it would probably remain anti-legomena at least for a few centuries while we all sort out what this means. Nobody's going to derive some new doctrine out of it, to be sure. But is the canon, in theory, open? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even though we would view such a discovery with great suspicion and critique, of naturally. Okay? But that just, now what you're doing is you're understanding like, what you mean by sola scriptura in a more sophisticated, more truthful, and in fact more Lutheran and small c Catholic way. And of course this is kind of miles away from what we see in our country of it's God's word, which version? The King James Version <laughs> only. Where did that come from? I don't know, but it's in English, so that's God's word. A little different. Even though we land at the same spot, ultimately, 
quite a bit different in terms of the infrastructure. I think it was about 20 years ago, we all went down to Balboa Park in San Diego to see the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit. It was just marvelous. But my question is, uh, I, and I don't remember, was there anything new in the Dead Sea Scrolls? In other words, uh, was there new? I know there was some Isaiah, and I know there was you know, other, other things. I don't think there was anything new. Do you know of anything? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, Vicar, do you know your... I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there was certainly, there was never any scuttlebutt that I'm aware of about there being like a new potential canonical book or something like that discovered. I, I think the main takeaway for, for our purposes is that it restored faith in the Hebrew text of the scriptures. Yeah, because the, the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, like the earliest we have is not that early, something like the 8th century. Vicar, correct me if I'm wrong on this stuff. They've probably all updated this. That was, you know, you study isagogics, and if you know anything about history, you go, probably what I think is not what people thought 30 years ago or not what people think are going to think in another 30 years. It's the nature of the beast. But anyway, the oldest Masoretic or Hebrew texts we had were dating back to the 8th century. The Septuagint the Greek translation of the Old Testament is earlier. We have that dated back to, I don't know, 2nd or 3rd century, something like that. And in fact, much of it can be corroborated because more often than not, the apostles in the New Testament are quoting from the uh, Septuagint text. So that, puts, that, that really put a bizarre thing in place where you'd say, we're less certain about the manuscript evidence of the Hebrew text than we are about the manuscript evidence of the Greek text of the Old Testament. But when that discovery was made, it corroborated so much of the Masoretic or Hebrew text that it really regained an authority and ascendancy and really kind of bolstered uh, the idea that that has been handed down accurately. Because there you have like a first century discovery of these texts, uh, and then that corroborating the eighth century of these texts. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, Vicar, if you find out anything uh, corrective, let me know, because I'm shooting from the hip on stuff I learned like 17 years ago or something, so it might have gotten a little dusty or rusty. Did I, is there another hand? Yeah? Oh, please. Who initiated the Septuagint, and why? Mm, that's a good question. I don't remember. Vicar, do you remember why it was? I think, I think it's called the 70, because 70 elders were convened to write it. I think it dates to like the 3rd or 2nd century B.C., and I think it has to do with the Hellenization. So you're in the intertestamental period, remember? Yeah. And what's happening, like let's just say the Holy Land, where the Jewish people are, is you're having um, pagan ruler after pagan ruler after pagan ruler, and you're having now huge Hellenization or Greek influence. And there's an idea of our people are losing the Hebrew, and we're going to translate it into the Greek. And, you know, there's all kinds of legend and nonsense about the 70 all, in, you know, translating it independently and then coming together and it all matched perfectly. <laughs> I mean, that's all nonsense, right? But other than those very, very broad brushstrokes of history, I can't help you in any more depth and detail. I don't know. I don't know if I would read too much into that. That that may well have been what they did anyway. If you're talking about scribes, scribes of anything may well have, yeah, Double yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, yeah, you're when you're a scribe, that's your job. You know, if you get a typo, you might lose your job as a scribe. They still got in anyway, but they're so small. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. You look at the, you know, and I'm kind of even. I'm kind of even overstating this when I talk. You, you know. 
what you were really talking about is not a text, either in the case of the Old Testament or in the case of the New. We're talking about texts. We're talking about many, many copies. And you compare all the copies and you say, and you can compare the, where they were found, when it's likely that they're written, what are the oldest, those are weighted the heaviest, you see. And then you can come up with something like a, uh, I don't have the Hebrew with me, um, but you can come up with a Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, I mean, and a Greek New Testament. And then what you're going to find when you open this is you're going to find the text up here, okay? But where does this text come from? You've got hundreds or um, maybe dozens or maybe thousands of manuscripts. So you have scholars culling through these going to the very best of our ability. This is what the actual text was. The autograph, we call it, the original writing, as best as we can tell. You're not close enough to see, but there are a bunch of little symbols in this Greek text and the same is true for the Hebrew. And these little symbols correspond to this very tiny text over here that you've got to have like glasses that have 50 magnification to be able to see. And what this will tell you, and it's kind of in a code. Vickers probably had to learn all that. Uh, but what this, what this code will tell you is what the manuscript evidence is for alternate readings. Okay. So it's a place where, where they said, hey, it's 60-40 in the manuscript evidence that it reads this way. But we're going to cue you in to what the 40%, the minority reading, would be here so that you can make your own decisions. So it's a very honest way, scholarly, of presenting the material in a concise format. Does that make sense? Okay. So you've got all of these manuscripts and from that, you're gaining your text that you see in front of you. Now, what you'll find is that in terms of like doctrinal changes, one manuscript to another, there's virtually none. Most estimates are somewhere like under 1% of differences, one manuscript to another, would have any kind of actual change in doctrine or truth. Now, are there differences in terms of like how you might read it as a literary piece of work? Yeah, sure, and there's actually some substantive ones. Um, well, if he wrote this, that would change you know, the coloring and the tonality. If he wrote the other, it would change the coloring and the tonality. But would it change the substance? No. Yeah, please, Barry. I guess I have two questions or thoughts. The Bible, as we know it, only came about with the printing press, I guess, in the 15th century. But uh, when did when did these all books uh, come together, date-wise? Was that third or fourth century? And uh, the second question would be, uh, at the end of Revelation, there's a reference to if anyone adds to or removes from this book. And I don't know whether that's referring to Revelation or the whole Bible, but uh, they will receive the plagues, you know. So if you could comment on that in the context of the adding adding a new book. Yeah. So the um, so re- that line in Revelation refers just to Revelation, properly speaking. This is not a technical theological point to stand on. Take it more as a devotional point. But the fact that the Holy Spirit has seen fit through His Church to have revelation at the end of the Bible, at the end of the canon as we receive it, and to have that line therein, I think reflects on the entirety. But that's a devotional point. I could say that in the church, and probably most people would agree, if I said that, and I wouldn't say that in a classroom, (laughs) because there's a higher level required there in terms of being able to pass scrutiny. So that the straightforward academic answer is all we know is that's what John wrote referring specifically to Revelation. Now, what, what you're going to find, and again, the messiness of this all will at first, in all likelihood, will at first strike you as weakness. But as you get to know it more, and as you, and then of course you can do this in a secondary way, Compare the manuscript evidence for, let's say, the Quran. 
you will find that the scriptures are the most certain piece of history we have, period. Anything you think you know about Plato, anything you think you know about Aristotle, anything you think you know about Mark Antony or any of the Caesars, anything you think you know about Chinese history, anything you think you know about the Quran, anything is infinitesimally less certain than what we have in the scriptures. Why? Precisely because it's so messy and there's so much of it. So what first appears to be a weakness, at least kind of to a simple-minded approach to it, um, then ultimately becomes its greatest strength. Because unlike the Quran, we didn't all sit down in a century at a meeting and tear up every manuscript except one and say that's going to be it. Thus, Muslims today have to say, well, how do we know that one of the other ones torn up, one of the different ones, wasn't in fact the right one? You can't know. But in Christianity, it's just, hey, as our, as our congregational president says, I love this. Can't wait to use it as I continue to get older. Open kimono. <laughs> Open kimono here. That's Christianity. Open kimono to the world. Look at all the manuscripts we have. We're not embarrassed if there's this difference or that difference. We're not, we're not embarrassed if you know, there's, we can't be certain on this, on this sentence or that word. Take a look at it. It's all the evidence. And the historical attestation is so monumental relative to anything else we have that, in fact, if you're going to reject the, te- the historical testimony of the scriptures and be consistent, you have to reject all history. Because anything else you think you believe or know from history has like 1% to 5% the attestation of the biblical history and truth. Okay. So again, that's, um, that's something uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery argues so effectively that if you're going to say, I don't believe the Bible, then if you're going to be intellectually consistent, you have to say, I don't believe any history. A similar dynamic that he draws out is the evidence is so, the biblical evidence, let's say for the resurrection, is so conclusive that if you put this at a legal standard and you say, well, I I reject the testimony of these eyewitnesses, the written testimony, I reject all of the hostile witnesses who corroborate what they've written, I reject all that, then if you're going to be intellectually consistent, you have to reject the entire legal system. And in fact, really, that any justice could ever be done on the basis of witnesses. So now you've undermined justice, period. So again, this is where, why I kind of began with that analogy. On the one end of the natural spectrum is a guy who's just utterly clueless, and he goes, the Bible is God's word. He has no clue about all this other stuff. But is he right? He's right! And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Western Christian church that's entirely aware of all of this stuff. And guess what they conclude? The Bible is God's word. Okay, So it's just kind of one way or another. Just don't fall in the, in the big bell part of that bell curve uh, where everybody is going... Oh, the Bible isn't God's word. Or the canon was manipulated by Constantine and the real truth was cast out and it's all a conspiracy now. Rubbish. That's, by the way, like the Joe Rogan approach to scripture. And he has millions upon millions of viewers and uh, more viewed than any cable channel or TV channel. Okay, let's pause there, please. Um, just a comment earlier that the, I understand that the... Um, um, Scribes of the Septuagint had access to ancient documents that, that had been lost. And I, I don't know, I guess the question is, when they make some reference to in the Septuagint to certain documents, they don't actually have that document, but we know they did. It, oh, a, yeah, that's obviously yeah. the case. Yeah, that's obviously the case. Um, which is something that Eusebius refers to also. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's all kinds of ancient documents that are like that. There's documents, we have historical ancient documents that refer to other documents that have been lost. 
And that's true also in the history of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, everybody okay? So again, um, what we see here is even though it's sophisticated and complicated and um, it's open kimono, it's everything on the table, and it's, uh, we're not ashamed or embarrassed, and we ultimately conclude that even though we have all of this dimensionality to it, because we acknowledge the historical reality of how the scriptures got into our hands, we land in the same place that God's people have always landed. This is God's word. Though this isn't particular to the point, at, at least at this stage in Chemnitz's writing, you, say, you might, even if you were to say this, well, I don't know about all of this. I don't know if the Bible is God's word or not. I'm, I'm not convinced. Maybe I'm, I'm more confused than I started. I'm just going to follow Jesus. Okay. Okay. Now go study Jesus' view. Go look at the red letters and study Jesus' view of the Old Testament. Because he just flat out states it as historical fact. Including historical Adam and Eve. Including historical Jonah getting swallowed by a fish. And he says of the Old Testament scriptures, it's infinitely easier for the heavens and the earth to be erased than one dot from that word. So that's what Jesus would tell you in regard to the surety and certainty of the Old Testament being God's word. What about the new? Well, Jesus promises that part of his pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, after his ascension into heaven, is the guarantee that the Holy Spirit will recall to the minds of his apostles everything that he taught. Now, do you think the Holy Spirit's going to get some things wrong or inaccurate? Definitely not. So Jesus says, you want to know the certainty of the New Testament scriptures? The certainty of the apostolic recollection and teaching? I guarantee it by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So where does Jesus land you if you say, well, forget all this other stuff, I'm just going to follow Jesus? Jesus lands you in exactly this place. The Bible is God's word. Old Testament guaranteed by him, New Testament guaranteed by him. All right, very good. Um, let's, uh, we've got just six minutes left. Let's go over, and so what, <laughs> what this actually is, is this is all still an answer to question, um, to kind of this question of how are the biblical books divided, which are these books, which are those books. And then if you get over to the top of 46, Kenneth is just going to continue with some commentary. And since of old, the order of the canonical hours... Okay, so these are like, um, gosh, it breaks down differently throughout history, but these are the different prayer times of the day. And uh, I think it's typically seven. Isn't it seven, Vicar? The, the old canonical hours. Josh, you're nodding your head. Yes, you've studied this stuff. I think the seven canon. I think it's seven canonical hours. I get a little confused because sometimes they've tacked on extra. You can never be too pious if you're, uh, if you're into this stuff. Um, so the canonical hours... Of the breviary, and that's just a little book that contains scriptures or prayers. I mean, you can probably tell that by the name itself. Was especially arranged for this purpose that the ministers of the church might become accustomed to daily reading of and meditation on Holy Scripture. The superintendents, again, this would be something like the district presidents. (laughs) I don't know. There's no direct parallel. Enjoin the pastors to read something daily in the Old and New Testament. By the way, I, I don't know that it technically falls under this, but if you're looking for like what's a modern-day equivalent of a Lutheran breviary, you would look at uh, the Treasury of Daily Prayer. That has all of the canonical prayer offices in it um, and gives you all the different readings and prayers you could possibly want. And that is a great resource simply because you can use it very superficially or very in-depth. And I even use it uh, with the vicars just very superficially. There's, we do the invocation, we do the psalm, we do a textual reading, we do the devotional reading from whatever theologian, we do the prayer, and that's just a nice, tight little devotion that probably takes about five, seven minutes, something like that. Um, so that's a great book. I think it's expensive as everything is these days. Um, 
What's that? It's free on well, it's, it's a few dollars on it. Oh, just a few dollars on an app. So that's the economical way to do it. Otherwise, you could buy some eggs, and then in about a month, you could sell said eggs. Then you can afford a treasury a daily prayer or two. So just forego the eggs for a week and get a treasury a daily prayer. Um, yeah, but that's a great resource. So if you were kind of like, well, what's a breviary and, and how should it be used by pastors or by people? Uh, that's, a, that's a good enough example, even if it's not, I don't know if it's technically a breviary or not. I don't really care about that. It would serve the same purpose. Okay, so then just continuing. And in the following examination, they will explore how many chapters they have read. What is the content of each chapter? How they understand the text? To which commonplaces, that's like lochi or um, articles of the faith, doctrines, that kind of thing, to which commonplaces it is to be referred and how it is to be used in application. Thus, the diligence and progress of each will be most correctly discovered. I mean, this would be an amazing way to improve as a pastor. I would give my left ear or something even more important to have Chemnitz be my superintendent and <laughs> run me through this. I mean, could you imagine like your, your theological trajectory and growth just go parabolic? Be incredible. Uh, sadly, we don't have anything like this today. There's uh, sometimes some cries to recover it, but nothing like this uh, today for pastors to continue to develop their understanding and skill. Uh, most of us are left to our own devices. And then um, usually, usually it doesn't take laity long to figure out if uh, the pastors are, our devices are good or not. <laughs> okay, so um, that, that kind of just rounds out that section on presenting the different books of the scriptures. And I added in a lot of extra detail for you to consider and or be refreshed in your memory. Are there anything, anything that you want to address in the closing minutes here in regard to the scriptures, the, as God's word and the nature of makeup? Everybody's okay? All right. Let's, um, let's hit question 51 and call it a day. What does God require of ministers of the church and how does he want them to dispense his mysteries? Answer, Paul covers this very briefly, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 and 4. And this is, um, let, a, let a man so account us as stewards of the mysteria on the mysteries of God. Chemnitz continues, let the dispensers of the mysteries of God therefore set before themselves the future judgment of God in which they will be rewarded according to the measure of faithfulness before the judgment seat of Christ. So again, a reminder that all of this stuff is deadly serious and has a future reward or punishment, although Chemnitz here only highlights the reward of laboring faithfully in, in the Word. Um, let me just point out this, uh, and again, those of you in the men's study on Monday night are going to be familiar with this, but the language of mysterion is where we get the language sacramentum, it's where we get the language of sacrament, okay, but important to know that the sacraments proper, the way we understand them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, sometimes absolution is thrown in there, who cares, whatever. Uh, but these things are actually only narrowly sacraments or mysteries. Um, broadly, every doctrine of the Christian faith is a mystery. Now, here's where we need a definition of mystery. Mystery doesn't mean, ah, oh, who done it? I don't know. So these are things we don't know about. Well, we don't know anything about anything. No, that's not the point. A mystery is something, a Christian mystery, is something so simple that a little child can understand and grasp its principle and truth. Well, you say, that's not much of a mystery. That's right. That's not the mysterious part. The mystery is that while a child can grasp the central fundamental element of that Christian truth, you can study that your entire life and learn more and more and more and, and never exhaust it. That's the nature of a Christian mystery. What you know at every step and stage and growth point along the way is in fact true and substantive and known 
But it's a mystery because you realize, I could study this forever and never plumb the depths. That's a Christian mystery. I could concretely and certainly know more and more and more and more and never plumb the depths. And then you simply have to marvel at the word, the gifts, the teaching of our God. So that's the mysteries of God divulged to us in the Holy Scriptures, of which pastors are called to be stewards. That is, they're not ours, but they're ours to use for your blessing and benefit. That's the point. Okay, that's it for today. The Lord be with you.